everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Main Engine Cutoff here live. We've got quite a tight stage up here today, so uh, this will be real fun. Um, this topic is a little amorphous, as everyone's been a little thrown off by the list of, of things I wanted to talk about. But generally, you know, we've got a whole set of people here working on low Earth orbit and lunar commercial space projects. Um, and those don't always sound like they fit together, but I find that um, the, the approach that people have been taking to find customers in both those markets feels like there's some commonality there. Um, there's In both cases, uh, everyone's in a little bit of an exploratory mode to figure out how this is actually going to work, how business cases are going to close, if they're going to close, uh, what the right model is. Uh, we've got, in one case, a launch company that's becoming a, a lunar company, and that's interesting in its own vein. Uh, so there's a lot to discuss, but uh, we'll go around the horn a little bit and just hear from everybody about uh, what your role is. I guess we should start with names, too. This is Jana from Firefly. But hear about what your role is, what you're working on, and uh, the kind of things that you're up to day to day at the organization. Yeah, thanks so much. My name is Jana Spruce, and I'm the vice president of spacecraft at Firefly Aerospace. Um, we do end-to-end -end transportation, but uh, my organization in particular is very focused on, we just won our second CLIPS mission to the moon, so we have lunar landers. We also do in-space mobility um, as well as the launch side. And Molly. Hi, I'm Molly Mulligan. I work for Redwire. I'm a director of business development. I'm really focused on all of our LEO payloads. So everything from working with pharmaceutical companies on creating new drugs to 3D bioprinting, pieces of organs, all the way to our 3D plastics printer and our 3D resin printers. So I work from our material science to our life science portfolio, and I get to have a lot of fun meeting new people all the time doing it. Yeah, so I'm Kevin Foley. I work for the Boeing Company. I'm in our Boeing Exploration Systems Division in Houston, Texas. I'm a director for uh, commercial human spaceflight um, programs, and uh, that's exciting. Um, it, it, we'll talk more about what all that is, but first and foremost, um, being uh, NASA's uh, prime contractor for the International Space Station Sustaining, uh, we start there, right? And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about crew transportation and our Starliner program. As, as part of the, the, the new commercial wave of, of excitement we have uh, looking forward to in the future. Awesome. And Angela, down the end. Yeah, and good afternoon. My name is Angela Hart. I am the Commercial Leo Development Program Manager for NASA. So I'm one of the NASA, the only NASA one up here. Um, we are concentrated on a number of different areas in our portfolio. Obviously, the number one project and goal for us is to work with industry to develop a commercial Leo destination to replace the ISS when the ISS retires. Super important thing for both NASA and um, the U.S. in terms of maintaining continuous presence. We we also have within our portfolio the private astronaut missions that are on the ISS, as well as the commercial destination ISS, Axiom's Venture on the ISS, and then our funded space sector agreements that we have with all of our partners that we do destinations. And we'll talk a little more. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, the that project itself I've talked a lot about recently because it is such an interesting case where, um, you know, NASA has this clear need in the near future, but when exactly that is going to hit, uh, both from a policy perspective and a budget perspective, but also from the, the company perspective, developing these things, uh, it's all a little bit up in the air still, and everyone's trying to figure out exactly how that's going to come together. Um, and that's kind of the commonality that I find on the CLIPS side. Maybe we can start on CLIPS with you. Is, um, Firefly has now got two missions. Uh, there's one that's a straight lander, and there's this second mission also includes uh, this, I, I forget the exact name that you've got for that kind of orbital transfer vehicle yeah, stage. Yeah, it has a, a transfer stage, 
We're also putting into orbit an ESA spacecraft called Lunar Pathfinder that, that will go into lunar orbit, and then we'll have our lander on top of that. And so the thing that we're really excited about at Firefly is that ability to now take some excess capacity. And that's really what the CLIPS office had in mind, was to create this service that then is available not only to NASA, but to other commercial entities. We've seen interest from a variety of, of commercial um, folks who want to go to the moon, um, and even other, you know, folks from other countries as well. You know, that's a great thing about Symposium. We get to cross paths with a wide variety of folks. And so anybody who's interested in going to the moon, now there are opportunities to go along with CLIPS rides. Um, we recently put out uh, an RFI. So we said, hey, we have this excess capacity. Who wants to go with us? And we've gotten great response from that so far. And um, that, that may enable us to then do a fully commercial mission as a follow-on to our, our CLIPS mission. And so we're really excited about that. You mentioned that you know, Firefly is intended to be an end-to-end -end transportation company. Um, a lot of us know Firefly as the launch company and are becoming more familiar with an end-to-end -end transportation company. I know that in the past there were plans for orbital transfer vehicles to take things between different orbits. Um, what's the motivation there to have Firefly be able to do the whole stack uh, from launch all the way to the lunar surface? Yeah, that, that transfer vehicle really is the in-space mobility piece. That's sort of the larger end, uh, high, very high Delta V uh, bus, essentially, that can take people where they want to go. It can also host a payload. Um, and so that is really a, a foundational piece. We're also doing a, a smaller demonstration of that by the end of this year for the um, in-space mobility portion with our SUV, um, which is our space utility vehicle. That's right. I've, that's, the, that's the kitschy name I forgot about. But <laughs> um, So in terms of the customer base in, in low Earth orbit and uh, the way that that market is kind of developing. Things are in an interesting spot right now where we do have the ISS up there. Uh, there's a lot going on that maybe, Molly, you can talk about some of the stuff that, that you've been working on that is operating on the station today. Um, and specifically, I'm curious about what the perspective is on in terms of acquiring customers that are going to be operating on the ISS and flying payloads to operate on the ISS and things that you're learning from selling that kind of service right now before we even get into you know brand new stations down the line. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a real challenge. People don't know that the ISS is open for business and that not only is it open for business, but they can do research that they do in their lab today in microgravity. And then people ask, well, why in the world would I do it in microgravity when we live in gravity? And so that education component of going to companies, talking about why on earth you go to space, why on earth do you develop drugs in space or do biology in space, and, you know, teaching them that removing that lens of gravity is what gives us the ability to discover new things, to innovate potentially faster, but just to learn something new about the systems we deal with every day. We have a partnership with Eli Lilly that's going really well. Um, we're going to be flying some of their drugs to the space station this year. Um, and we're really excited about that. We're also adding more and more pharma companies to our list uh, when it comes to our drug development uh, hardware. But we also have a 3D bioprinter on the space station. And while we're not printing organs today that can solve the organ transplant problems, we're laying the groundwork to do that. We're working with the Uniform Services University to 3D print the meniscus. Uh, it's one of the most common injuries to our service members is a torn meniscus. And right now they sew it up and hope for the best. So we're working with them to try and actually print a meniscus that could be used to 
fix the torn meniscus problem that a lot of our service uh, folks suffer from. Also a big problem for athletes. So, you know, hopefully maybe the NFL or someone else will take a look at it. We always hope. But, you know, a lot of it's education. I don't go to a lot of space conferences, even though I work in the space industry. I go to a lot of material science conferences, pharmaceutical conferences, biology conferences, to get that education component out. And, I, you know, it's a long road, um, but just talking about this with more and more audiences is what is going to make the difference to help us get people there. And having those people who are willing to take chances today, as this is pretty new still, and um, having those success stories that we can share more and more. Yeah, and that the, the fact that it is still pretty new today is an interesting situation for trying to build new stations already. I feel like we haven't actually figured out <laughs> the this, this situation there. Uh, and from the Boeing perspective, I have an interesting perspective on it because you are the prime contractor on the ISS today. So there's a lot that you're learning from operating the ISS. Um, while you've also got eyes towards contributing to Orbital Reef, you know, Starliner is obviously up there as part of con contributions to ISS. But in terms of, of building a functional facility in low Earth orbit, um, are there portions of the work at Boeing that is taking lessons learned from, you know, things that Molly's selling to go up on station and actually operate that you're able to incorporate down the line into a future program? What's yeah. that feedback yeah, that's cycle? A, that's a really good perspective. And, and the short answer is yes. Um, the space station has been operating um, for almost, you know, three decades. The first was mostly consumed with building. The second with outfitting and getting our legs underneath us and, and, uh, starting to conduct research and, and outfitting it. And we're in a decade now where we're at full speed. Um, there are over 20 commercial um, plat um, facilities up there conducting science and research. Um, over 150 uh, countries are participating on the International Space Station. So this decade has really proven um, that there's a value proposition of, of being present and, and conducting technology demonstrations, uh, proof of concept work. Um, both basic and applied sciences. Um, that, uh, you know, is always um, an opportunity for us to see uh, those that can transition into commercial models. The station's a great place to prove that out, not only the technology, but the business cases and the business models around that. So um, we've got the International Space Station um, um, extended the international partners have all agreed that we're going to operate and support um, utilization of this to 2030 at, at least 2030 maybe beyond the platforms capable of operating beyond that um, there'll be a time when it you know when it, it makes sense um, to, to maybe cease operations on that but there'll be a time where there'll be both the International Space Station operating and uh, these new commercial space stations operating and and that's exciting, you know, having multiple platforms uh, operating and doing the unique things. You know, not all platforms are for everybody. Platforms can be designed to, to service different segments and tailored to that. Um, and that, I think, is the, the, will become the, the, the bow wave of uh, commercial uh, and, and government and academia moving in a more robust way and, and taking advantage of low Earth orbit. Um, and with all of that, you know, where, where people go, commerce will follow. It's just generally the way things happen. And uh, growing ourselves um, in that regard, I think, it is, is very promising. And, and Angela talked, too, about the beginnings of the conversation that get us at a point where, where that vision can be realized. Angela, the, the interesting 
problem that you're presented with is trying to define a program that says like here's here's what NASA needs out of this. Here's the capability we need. We need this amount of crew time. We need this kind of payload space. But at the same time, you you, you know it's it's a funny situation right now in the ISS in that these payloads that are that are flying on the ISS as commercial payloads are being operated by NASA astronauts. So to separate you know what is the NASA part of this and what is the commercial part of this from like a requirements perspective seems. It's probably less tricky for you being so familiar with it, but um, from the outside, it's it's interesting to try to read like what is it that NASA needs from these this new program, right? Like, what what can you commit to in the future that lets them build? Because not only to know what they need to provide NASA, but to know how much room is left over that we can go sell to other providers. So, what is the approach to uh, you know? I've known that that has been updated over the years. I think even a couple months ago there was an update to uh, the kind of baseline requirements. So can, can you walk us through how that's built out? What what goes into creating that model that of concept of operations, really, for these new stations? Obviously, it's evolving, right? And But I think we have made some very major policy decisions recently this year in NASA that kind of lays the framework for what we are going to do in the future, right? We, we know we want to commercialize um, future destinations. We, we want commercial industry to own and operate those, and we want to buy the services. We want to be one of many customers. We're going to build off of what we learned on commercial resupply and commercial crew program in terms of our acquisition strategy and NASA as an anchor tenant. But it is different because in both of those cases, early on, we were the sole user and really the sole funding agent for those items. Not that the industry didn't invest a lot. They did. And they own the IP and those are certainly their vehicles. And we're starting to see how those vehicles are now being sold commercially. And you really look at, look at just in the last couple of years exponentially the number of different services and launches that are happening that we wouldn't even envision five years ago. Um, And so I think that NASA and the ISS and Boeing and all of the, the others that are on ISS today have laid that groundwork. And I actually think we do know how to work in LEO, right? We've done a lot of work. We, we, we understand the engineering. We've done the, uh, the hard NRE. We put in the big dollars that it take to actually show that this is possible. And I think that now it's the time for NASA to pass on that technology to our destinations um, and our other commercial partners across the board, not just the destinations, but the suppliers and all the other different infrastructure that it takes to run um, a, a space station, which is not just building the space station, right? You have the payload operations, you have utilization, you have um, astronaut training programs across the gamut, there's lots and lots of things. And so what you mentioned before and all of you have talked about is utilizing ISS right now over the next decade is the is super important even for us, right? We want to use, we want to do com- as much commercial activities as we can. We want to do as many tech demos as we can to buy down those risks. We want to show those markets um, on ISS so that we can help build those business cases for industry where we have um, customers that can move over. And we're starting to have that dialogue with them as are all of the other folks here that are actually working with those customers is when is it time to transition from the ISS to a platform, right? Obviously, we need to make sure we have one up there. Um, I am told I'm not a schedule-driven program, but um, we obviously, the other big piece of the fact is that um, the government does not want to have a gap 
in Leo. We want to maintain continuous human presence. We want to buy services when they're available. Um, we've talked about that 2028 to 2030 being a two-year gap period. But if we don't have destinations till 29, we'll make that work. And fortunately, we have this amazing you know, facility up there that can keep doing lots for us even longer than that. So that schedule is going to evolve as we see that business case and those platforms being developed and we will all do the right thing and make that timeline you know work for for everybody i've had all of the providers on the commercial leo projects on my show from axiom to blue origin everybody everybody's been on and i i'm trying to remember if all of them said this but i think the vast majority of them at some point in our conversation said that an important piece and this is a real quandary for the situation right now is that they need to know a date that the Certainly. ISS is done, right? But that seems problematic just from my external eyes to arrive at a date because there are, number one, like we're using the ISS, so we're, we're, we're working here, like we're doing stuff on this. The schedule of these new stations is, is unclear. So calling a shot and saying this is the day when ISS is coming. And certainly you've seen in the budget request, there's a deorbit tug now being percolated through the budget and we don't have to get in the budget because that's going to be a whole thing if we do but there are movements in this way of, of defining what is the end date is that a realistic thing to come up with well i think that nasa has been very clear that we're targeting to have commercial destinations by 2028 and so if that were to realize then you know we would be talking very seriously about iss end of life in 2030 31 as has been put out in the media it's been very clear nasa has made that statement i'm not saying anything that you know somebody else yeah, hasn't yeah, already said um, but we do have a capability to expand the iss it has a lot of capability um, but we do want to get these destinations working as fast as possible we want to get them up there we want them learning we want to use the iss um, as long as we can and we want to use iss right to obviously it's an amazing platform we want to use it right to the last day that you know we can't use it anymore right and that transition that little messy middle is where it's going to be really interesting right because we don't want to um, reduce the services that uh, that our communities and our science and researchers see. We see lots of folks ready to step in, but that transition off of the ISS to somewhere is something we also have to look at. Um, NASA has also made it very clear, as has um, the government, that we want to continue with the U.S. National Lab on these destinations, and so the funding of all that research, that applied science, is will continue. So I don't think there's a question there. Um, I think the question really is. What is the percentage of NASA versus um, private industry and, um, and commercial companies? And I think that's really going to come over the next couple of years where we're going to see that. NASA is going to have a minimum buy that we're going to need in order to support the U.S. National Lab and as well as our technology demonstrations to support exploration and our other projects. Um, but we'll see where that other part of the market is and what that means to NASA as far as being an anchor tenant. That's something I really want to talk about across the board as well, is that you know, NASA's intent in, in both of these programs is to be one of many customers. Is like the, that's the catchphrase, I think. Um, the other end of that, though, is that NASA isn't like, committing anyone to doing exactly the same service for other customers as they do for NASA. That's just like, we're going to buy this much. You have to make the business case close from there. And, and the example would be, I had Lori Garver up here yesterday. We were chatting about the origins of commercial cargo and crew and the way that we kind of saw that progress is that I don't she she says that she saw this coming from the beginning but I don't know that many other people thought that a side effect of commercial cargo and crew would be the greatest commercial launch 
opportunity that has existed and that SpaceX has created this business. They're flying more regularly than anyone has on the commercial sector. Um, so it's like NASA was one of many customers there, but the services that were being sold on the other side was not cargo and crew to a space station. It was commercial launch. And it was sort of this like very related but kind of spin-off thing. So, you know, on the lunar side, um, NASA's buying payloads to the lunar surface. Uh, do you expect that the rest of your commercial outlook for this sort of program would be more payloads to the lunar surface? Or do you think there are spin-off kind of like semi-related uh, programs that are enabled by NASA buying that clips? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's, we, we talked to somebody from uh, Crescent Space a couple minutes ago about building a comms network around the moon. It's sort of a semi-related business. Are there, there things there that Firefly's looking at? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, that we are excited about with our second mission is the ability to really open that up to a variety of customers. And um, I sort of jokingly talk about we need to find the killer app for the moon, right? What is the real business reason for going there? The science is, is great. We're very excited about some of the scientific missions that are going, but especially in the ways that that enables then, um, you know, more of a commercial reason to go. And so we're seeing more, I think NASA's investment in the CLIPS program has been fabulous because it's enabled us to sort of prove out that service and, and convince companies that it's real and that you can go and that there's opportunity there. And even just, just that adding that confidence and lowering the risk is, is huge in this, uh, in this particular you know, type of endeavor. In terms of the payloads on, on these platforms, uh, Molly, I've got a question for your department here. Um, knowing the kind of stuff that you've had experience uh, in, the, in the biomed kind of field where these payloads are going up to the ISS, um, the ISS is continually occupied. There's always somebody on board uh, to manage these payloads. Do you, what I'm curious about is like, is that a requirement of many of these applications? Is that there's always a human there? Uh, or can you put a payload on a lunar lander? Can you put a payload in a space station that doesn't necessarily have anyone in it at the moment and just let it run? Yeah. And when the people come up on the next time, they can grab it and bring it down. How does, how does that work for you? Yeah, so we've actually really focused from the beginning on automating things as much as possible. We love astronauts. They do a lot of great work for us. But not all of them are trained as scientists, let alone biologists. So mistakes can happen. And we've always focused on automation and minimal interaction. We have some payloads right now that are just so complicated we can't, like our bioprinter that requires a lot of astronaut interaction. But when we look at crystallizing drugs or doing some basic cell culture work or even using organoids to replace animal models, most of that's automated. Once a week, the astronaut might need to go in and change the, the media, what feeds the cells. But other than that, it's automated. We have pumps. We control it from our payload operations center on the ground. And we are exploring what happens when we go and put up these first CLDs, these first commercial LEO destinations. If they're not manned, what science can we do? That's something we actively talk about every day. And we look to the moon and Mars and beyond, even Gateway. What science can we do? What science can be enabled by robotics? Or we can just enable it from the ground and then let it sit till someone comes and collects it. So it's something we're actively looking at. Um, you know, right now we do have astronauts, so we take advantage of them. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> On the Boeing end, um, as somebody focused on the infrastructure, the transportation, the logistics behind this, this kind of work. Um, you know, Starliner's in progress right now, and, and that's meant to serve the ISS capability with, again, the, what NASA needs out of that service. Looking ahead to contributions to Orbital Reef or, or whatever it may be where Starliner's flying or you're providing hardware to these systems, um, are there changes that you're going to be making from that kind of baseline, uh, either in the Starliner case for transportation or in the case of the hardware that's on ISS today, uh, are there 
things that you're going to be tweaking, knowing the, the kind of stuff that we're hearing about from Molly in terms of what the actual market is going to be there in a non-NASA capacity? For Starliner, you're talking about. So yeah, yeah. you mentioned that. We're, um, our, our Starliner is going for its crew test program right now. Um, it's launching uh, scheduled July 21st. The vehicle's down in our integration facility at KSC, ready to go. There's some paperwork we're going to close out. Um, as the traffic at air traffic control at station clears out um, and and we get a window right we're ready to go so that's pretty exciting and hopefully you know we get through this um, and then we can get into our regular service missions and and in the cadence to service the International Space Station. We're very focused on that and we're very much looking forward to that at the same time we do have an eye towards the future. Uh, Angela mentioned in her portfolio's private astronaut missions um, Starliner, we hope, it, uh, it is a vehicle that um, has uh, customer interest, and we would we would certainly um, pursue those and, and entertain those, similar to the way SpaceX is doing uh, those private astronaut missions today. Um, but we still have some work to do to get through our test program and, and start um, our service missions to station. But those those missions will look very similar. They'll they'll look very similar. There's very little, if any, modification we would have to do to our vehicle. Um, there is uh, cargo that we carry along with with that, um, and then you know the crews and the durations for private astronaut missions are are, are somewhat fixed and, and determined uh, by NASA. Um, we do have a, a unique feature in, in Starliner is um, there's there's five seats in that vehicle. Uh, we've just gone through the certification for the for the the extra seat. NASA owns the missions, so but there is an opportunity to put a. A fifth astronaut on that mission, on a mission, um, and um, that could make sense if, if depending on how the the manifest is organized, to get back-to-back -back missions for the handovers, where you would have an extra crew member on board, and and with an extra crew on board, I think we're convinced that you get more utilization done, you get more more time on on research, and and you know, and that's precious. So the more we can get out of of of, of crew time, more crew there, more crew time, more utilization, more yield on, on the research, and the more we can get done. So, um, and I think that's important, you know, to maximize the, the amount of, of, of work we can accomplish in the time we, we're operating space station. And we think Starliner can help, help with that, that overall plan. One interesting aspect of commercial LEO development so far is that um, the companies that are bidding are, are tasked with end-to-end -end services, right? And that's different than what today, NASA's got the space station, they buy services, cargo and crew up to the space station. Um, but in that new era, you're asking for, give us everything, right? Provide the space station space, the transportation around that. Uh, why, why is that? What was the methodology behind there? Is there something that you're looking for that you think with that integrated model you can get better or more predictable pricing or, or costs or schedule? What is it? No, I think it, it really goes back to the overall ideal of commercializing LEO and handing over this area to, of industry to um, the commercial sector. Um, if NASA were to do two, two contracts, and we looked at, we looked at, do we continue to do a transportation contract? Now, we're now dictating to that commercial entity, that destination, what those transportation vehicles have to be, um, what those interfaces now might have to be. We could 
could potentially be um, disallowing innovation that they may be thinking of that they want to do for their other customers that don't work, like as you mentioned. Um, I could be driving that fleet to only carry X number of astronauts because that's all I, I need versus industry working together to meet the commercial needs. And so we still do intend to um, human rate and certify any services that occur that NASA is part of. So both the portions of the destination that we that we would be part of and party to and ensure the NASA crew safety and as well as those transportation vehicles. So we continue we plan to continue the commercial crew program certification program for future vehicles. It also allows industry to decide when and how to on-ramp people, right? Because we actually would like to see even more transportation vehicles and that's and different types of transportation, different types of destinations has been noted before where you may have human tended and unmanned and obviously continuous um, human presence as well. And so we think that that broadness of the economy is what's really going to make it sustainable and successful. Um, we are part of that evolution that you're talking about is determining where NASA should set the interface though, right? How much are we completely hands-off, right? Do we um, define what the docking and berthing interface? Maybe I don't say what vehicle, but I'm going to say you got to do it this part because it's a super important area and we it would be difficult for both sides to be selling to have a unique destination to have a whole bunch of different docking and berthing. So we are looking at things like that on how we can maintain uniformity that would allow for that's one of the biggest fears of having multiple destinations, right? Is that you got to design payloads to do to different destination. You might have different vehicles, you might have different environments, et cetera, et cetera. And so we are looking where is that sweet spot of where we control an interface to ensure the right level of uniformity and where we allow enough openness so that the flexibility is there for, for industry to be innovative and drive those costs down like we saw on the commercial crew program, you know, which is what we're really counting on. It sounds similar to some of the stuff going on on the clip side in that um, there's, and we can we should talk more about exactly how this goes on behind the scenes, but you know, each CLIPS mission that goes out, there's a set of investigations from the NASA side, and I think it changed recently where there's like a PI over each mission now that's managing the payload set there. Um, but the point was that they'd be able to call up, put a task order out, say, these are the payloads going to the moon, and uh, you know, I've talked to the other providers of the CLIPS missions, haven't gotten a chance to talk to Firefly yet, so this is cool, but um, to figure out like what is their standardized payload integration process, and uh, in some cases, could things be remanifested? You know, if a payload's late on that mission, can we swap it over to another one and make it not a huge deal? Uh, now, there's like laws of physics to contend with of like, oh, now it's heavier or it's lopsided or whatever. But um, in a in a wide open world, you know, the, the standardization of the payload interfaces is that a thing that Firefly is focused on day to day? Did you sort of get that sorted out first and build a lander around it? What's the process? Well, the, the lander missions for CLIPS are each fairly unique so far, but uh, our second mission looks very much like the first. The, the lander portion is largely the same. Um, we, you know, we have a pretty flexible platform to put those on, and our first mission had actually 10 different NASA payloads, everything from uh, a drill to uh, you know, little pods that shoot out and look at regoliths. So, I mean, you know, we had to put things all over the vehicle, and so that really helped us, I think, approach it from a more open-ended, you know, what all can we take? Um, 
but but certainly as as we move forward, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about is there sort of a CubeSat model for rovers, for example, that we might take on a lander, smaller sized, um, or for those lunar payloads. Um, but you know, every mission is unique. That's the hard thing about space. But where we can, we're looking to uh, find ways to standardize and, and make it easier for people to plug in. You know, to the point of having having a standard and something that's known uh, is is always helpful for the industry. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, to stay on that for a second, though, a, a thing I feel like is tricky is that you haven't got a lot of reps yet on these lunar missions, right? And this is where it is quite different from the commercial cargo and crew model, where you know, two providers were given a slate of, of missions to fly. So, you know, over on the Boeing side, they could plan out for a certain set of Starliner missions and know that there's going to be a set so you can put a program in place for whether it's reuse or, or whatever it is. Um, on the clip side, you're you're fighting over each task order as it comes out. So you've got two missions, Astrobotics got a couple, Intuitive Machines has three, but so you kind of have to like win your way into a manifest where things actually begin to become not reusable in like a hardware sense, but processes become reusable and, and you learn exactly what are those things that you can move from mission to mission. So how do you deal with that challenge of, of like not knowing when that next mission is going to hit or how many missions you will fly, unless you're secretly planning a bunch of lunar missions that you haven't told us about. Uh, and <laughs> you can unveil a, that here. <laughs> that's a great comment. I mean, you know, we are in, in a period right now where NASA's in the driver's seat primarily. Um, but again, you know, we're, we're rooting for everybody to be successful on these CLIPS missions. Um, there's one hopefully landing next week. And, you know, we really want to see everyone be successful so that the industry as a whole gains that confidence. And, and that's where I think we'll see, um, as I mentioned, with some of the capacity that we have on our next mission, finding out that there's a lot more interest out there maybe than folks thought. And, you know, people were probably waiting for the risk to come down, to, to believe that it's real and see what's going to happen. And so as that's progressing, you know, we, we are looking at building out a fully commercial mission. And so uh, as potentially as a follow-on as our third mission. And, and what's exciting about that is, uh, you know, we've talked with the CLIPS office and we're, if we're able to do that, we may be able to turn back to NASA and say, Hey, we have some extra space. You know, what do you want to fly? And and make them instead of being the anchor tenant, put them into you know sort of a secondary tenant position. Uh, but they still get to take advantage of that service and and use it that way. This is one area where the stuff that's happening on station might um, be able to lend some feedback on this because uh, I'm sure the racks that are on station today look nothing like the racks that were on like you know stations in the '60s. Like we've learned a lot because we've been in space for a long time. So, in terms of standardization. Um, now, there's different constraints because there's, uh, you know, when your astronauts need to go over and access this, that's a different constraint than they need deck access or they need, you know, access to lunar surface. But um, in terms of that interchangeability and, and standardization of, of payloads, um, when you're going out to these other non-space conferences, how do you communicate that to people about, about like, I don't know, you can't really get, like, super technically nerdy about what kind of rack it is and whatnot, but how do you explain that to people of, like, these are the options available and uh, here's what you would do with them, like... That seems like a critical part to finding customers that didn't think about going to the moon or going to Leo before. And what's that communication like for you? Yeah, so we've actually tried to kind of remove that level of things. We have our lockers. We leave them on the ISS. We're hoping in the future that we'll continue to have some kind of locker form factor, but we're prepared to go to a different form factor. But we fly back and forth. We try and keep it small and lightweight. And so I can bring it and show it to people. We call them cassettes. Uh, we have a couple different styles. Some look like pie wedges. Some are rectangles. Is that, are these the yeah, things they're back, back here? They're if anybody wants window. to check them They'll out, look we'll in the window them, later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have some out later. But um, we try and remove that part of things for the customer because 
we're, we're talking to people who aren't space experts. They can become space experts if they want to, but that's really our job. Our job is to translate what they do today on the ground to something that will work in space, whether that's in LEO or that's on the moon, lunar surface or that's on Mars. It's, we're agnostic to that because we're just going to take our form factor that we can show them, that we send to their lab, that I can carry to conferences, that they can play with and touch and use to get them interested and to show them, hey, it may look totally different. We don't have an incubator where you open the door and slide things in, but it functions the same way. You just have to get used to the fact that you're not doing it with your hands. We have pumps and we have other things that automate that process. So trying to remove that level of confusion is really what I do because we want everything standard. It's not standard now. It's not going to be completely standard in the future. We know that and we need to be ready, but our customers don't. Is this stuff that comes up in those discussions about the future Starliner missions that would happen to commercial space stations, something like, you know, Starliner's built to those specs that NASA needed certain up and down mass, certain capabilities uh, of, of what they're taking out of the station, returning these experiments, that kind of stuff. Um, what if you get five years down the line and Molly's like, hey, I, none of this works with the stuff that you're flying in Starliner anymore because we've went and commercialized this and changed everything. How, what is the flexibility there? I think a lot of the architecture around these vehicles has remained flexible, right? And, and the, the little cargo we, we carry on Starliner uh, when we have a full complement of crew on there, you know, it, it's the standard stuff. It, it's, it's, you know, we're just carrying it up there, making sure it's safe, and we, we trans, transfer it over to the platform. So the, those interfaces are just are, are pretty standard. So there's, there's nothing really tricky about any of that. Uh, what, what Molly has talked about, though, um, is, is not a simple thing. She kind of downplayed how, <laughs> how complex she it down for me. She could is, tell. I needed it. Um, by going out and uh, talking about space station or talking about doing microgravity research on other platforms and translating what they're doing in their labs or in their, uh, on the ground into, into the facilities on orbit. And it should seem seamless, right? Because the work they do and the, the, the standards and protocols for which they're doing it in their terrestrial labs have to match what we're doing on orbit, right? So the results are comparable for their controls, right? And, the, and their, their research can advance. So, so those standards have to be very connected. And so the hardware um, that they have in, in their terrestrial apps has to, if not be identical, uh, very close to the, the hardware that's repackaged and, and, and operating on, on these, these space platforms. Um, and that's, a, that's kind of a, a, a hard thing to go do because the state of the art in terrestrial labs is always changing. There's always a new capability that one would want on space station. And there's been a good inventory of, of what all of that is. And the trick is, is finding those customers, feeding, feeding into those most promising markets and, and threading the needle and bringing them into space, right? And, and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to develop out those markets, um, develop customers, right, that have a, a willingness and, um, and then enabling the access to, um, to space. Um, and we shouldn't let our foot off the, the throttle on that because um, uh, this, is, this is really the time we have to start building and fostering that, right? So this transition we're talking about in the next decade um, is we just pick up on it seamlessly and continue to grow it. 
Um, if we do nothing now, or we just kind of level out, right? We we, we we risk we risk the momentum that we're we're, we're building. So, um, and a lot of that is is in the standardization and the attractiveness of um, how easy it would be to to take what you're doing, right, and then just add a little facet into your research program, right? That'll either improve your technology, get you to market quicker, right, or have you a better understanding, um, as a proof of concept that you can bring back. Uh, and, and to the markets you're dealing, you're, you're involved with here on Earth, and, and perhaps for, if you're dealing in, in future space markets too, the transitions, you know, to an in-space capability, in-space production um, that feeds forward into um, into that market. So it's uh, a lot of work still to be done, and um, and we have a, a good start on it, but we got to really, really, really focus and emphasize that going forward. Maybe to tie us up, we, we can have some NASA perspective on, uh, you know, what we've been talking about here is, is trying to find ways to commercialize that other part of the demand. And, um, but from the perspective of people either building the payloads for it or building the, the platforms for it, when they go to bid for these, right, and we'll use commercial LEO uh, destinations as an example, um, I'm curious about the bidding process and how much insight NASA has or requires or maybe you don't want to know about this at all about what those other markets are. And, and when the pitches finally come in for the, the real whole thing, we're going to down select to whatever it is, one or two providers at the end. Um, is that a piece of the decision matrix of like, okay, well, we really like their tech, but it doesn't seem like they've worked out their business case enough. So we're not as confident that that will be a platform that we can use in the future. Or we'd have to pay too much to make use of it. Is that legally allowed to be part of the, of the bidding process? And is I it? It absolutely is legal allowed to be a part of the bidding process. Now, exactly what our criteria is going to be when we go out for um, certification and services of a, of a service contract, and it will be an open competition, but I can say in the um, agreements and contracts we have today, we have already incorporated that into our milestones. It's very important that we're seeing that these markets are being developed, and so we have actually marketing milestones and customer development mar milestones for all of these destination providers providers so that we are getting that insight. We're also doing our own um, research studies and, and doing different um, studies with different um, companies to understand what they're doing. We're also working with these destinations to understand what does that pricing look like when you go into a commercial market because that's going to affect what, what I think I'm going to pay, but it's also going to affect what other people. I do want to just add on to what um, John and Molly said. You can even see just in, even though there's a lot to go and we know we don't have a sustainable market today, you're seeing such an increase in interest and partly, uh, mostly also to do with the fact that you have so many other people talking about it, right? NASA's been trying to build these markets. We've been going out and talking to researchers. Boeing's been doing it. All the major players have been doing this for years, but now you have tenfold the number of companies that are off doing that and they're going to different people that we didn't think about, right? And NASA's done this. We've been working on it for years, but we're not business development people. That's not, I mean, that's not our area of expertise necessarily, right? We definitely have people that help us with that, but that's not certainly what NASA is known for, right? And so having all these other folks looking at different ideas, talking about what customers need, and I can tell you what we're doing in this part of the development with NASA to these companies, we're 
we're handling this a lot different. We're putting out a lot of RFIs, putting out a lot of requests for information to industry to say, this is what we're thinking. This is how we think this is going to work. This is, what do you think about insurance and liability? How do you think this model is going to work? Where does NASA need to get out of the way? And where do you want NASA to stay? Because we are still defining what that set of requirements is going to be. Um, and we're trying to make sure that we don't stifle that innovation, but we also don't, you know, set these destinations up for early failure because we, you know, put out the wrong requirements. And so, um, and all these little things that we know, and I don't want to say little, all these things, great things that we're doing on station today, we're learning from them. We're learning from private astronaut missions. We're learning how to work with private citizens in orbit. They've already brought in new payloads that we haven't seen before. You know, we're learning that tourists don't really want to just look out the window. They actually want to have meaningful things to do, right? And so there's a lot of things that we just, we never thought about that. We thought they were just going to sit in the cupola all day, right? And just, I would, and, 100%. You know, SRV. Yeah, I'm not doing and, any work. And, but when you get up there, you actually want meaningful things to do and they want to they wanna do outreach. We've already reached, they've reached all kinds of different demographics that we haven't reached. So I think that's what's going to get the word out. That's the kind of things that's going to make change and we're going to end up finding that killer app, as you were saying, on Lunar, we'll find that for the next destination. We continue and will continue to invest in, in space manufacturing and all these other areas, even on destinations, as we continue to work that market. So I think it's the, all of us working together that, that's going to um, make this possible. Angela stuck the landing. That was a perfect ending. Uh, I, thanks for all hanging out and dealing with my weird jumble of like talking about customers across Lunar and LEO areas. I thought interesting mix, put it all together because it's two of the areas I'm most excited. And I've, I've talked about a lot. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, I got little cards over there. You can grab a link to where you can find it in the podcast players that you follow, Main Engine Cutoff. Thank you all so much for hanging out with me. And uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks again to the whole crew that joined me on stage there, Angela, Molly, Jenna, and Kevin. It was a uh, very diverse set in terms of the roles and the organizations uh, on stage. I hope it made sense to you. There was something in my head that kind of put these topics together. So I uh, hope that came through for you. I thought it was a really cool conversation to uh, hear some of the similar problems that they were encountering across all those different sets of work. And uh, obviously hearing from Angela directly about, uh, you know, commercial Leo directly from uh, manager of the program at NASA. That's, that's always a really special thing. So um it was only a little bit weird to be doing that in, uh, with an earshot of the NASA booth as I'm like, eh, I don't know about this yet. <laughs> so uh, hopefully they all took that in stride if they overheard anything. But uh, I guess that's what I do here anyway. Just uh, Usually I record these in my very small office that I'm sitting in now, and then I got to do it on a stage in front of everyone who I'm opining about. So uh, definitely uh, a different experience, but one that uh, was a really, really awesome week. So I hope you've been enjoying these shows. Uh, and as always, thanks to Redwire for hosting this all and putting this together. Omar, Austin, and everyone else there uh, was was so awesome to work with and put this all together. And uh, they were totally game to just let me go up on stage and do whatever I was interested in doing. Had no uh, ties to you know needing to cover certain kinds of content or anything like that. So really awesome to uh, do that. So thanks again. And thanks to all of you who made this possible. This is a 100% listener-supported show. I could not, literally could not do this all without everyone out there supporting at mainenginecutoff.com support. If you want to join the crew, head over there, and you could be an executive producer like the 36 people who produced this episode of the podcast. Those are Bob, Frank, Tim Dodd, the Avrashnot, Harrison, Russell, Rob, Joel, Benjamin, Donald, Chris, Brad, Tyler, Simon, Jan, Moritz, Ryan, Dawn Airspace, Pat, Lee, Fred, 
Matt, David, Warren, Theo, and Violet, Lars from Agile Space, Pat from KC, Steve, Eunice, Chris, Small Spark Space Systems, Stealth Julian, The Astrogators at SCE, and four anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for the support, for being there, for making this stuff possible. Uh, so if you want to head over, join that crew, and uh, get Miko headlines in your feed, mainenginecutoff.com slash support is where to go to do that. Hit me up on Twitter at WeHaveMiko or on email, Anthony at Cutoff. Or as I keep mentioning now, work with me at Pineworks, pineworks.co, to see the work that we do and what we could help you out with. Uh, that is also a legitimate way to support uh, Miko since it is what I spend a portion of my week on anyway. So uh, check that out if you're interested. But otherwise, I uh, hope you've been enjoying these shows and there's uh, one more coming your way that uh, was really special. So uh, that is uh, coming up uh, tomorrow or so, depending on when you're hearing this. So keep your eyes peeled and thanks again for listening. I will talk to you soon. Bye.